Welcome to the Bible Study. I'm Stephen Lawson, president of One Passion Ministries, and each week I will teach verse by verse through a passage of Scripture so that you can better understand the Word of God and put it into practice in your life. Join me now as we look together into this section of the Bible. I want to first begin by, by reading, starting in verse 6. But it is not as though the Word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah will have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born, and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to His choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, these are blockbuster verses, to say <laughs> the least. Um, in these verses, there is an issue that Paul is addressing. And in order to understand these verses, we need to understand what is on Paul's mind to address. And it is very simply the issue that he anticipates is on the mind of the readers, the believers in Rome. And it is what he anticipates is on your mind and on my mind. And so Paul is like a good attorney who will bring an issue up before the other attorney can bring it up. So Paul wants to get this out on the table and in essence unplug a question that would hinder uh, the readers from fully buying into everything that he's saying. And here is the issue. God has promised to bless the nation Israel. God promised Abraham to make him the father of a great nation. But look around. Israel is now hardened in unbelief. Israel is now apostate. And that was true not only in the first century, that is true today. And so any thinking person would ask the question, so what happened to the Word of God? What happened to the promises of God? Because God promised to make Israel a great nation and to pour out spiritual blessing upon the nation Israel, right? And we just looked in Romans chapter 8 that those whom He foreknew, He predestined, He justified, He called, He glorified. There is an irrevocable, unalterable, eternal purpose of God in sovereign election. And the nation Israel... That's the chosen people of God. And the election of God is, it's, it's irrevocable. So, what happened? <laughs> why, why are the chosen people, doesn't appear to be their chosen? 
So that's the issue on the table. And if you're thinking, and I know you're thinking, then this has to be addressed. Now, as we wade into Romans 9, we're wading into some deep waters, okay? And so we're going to have to take our time as, as we go through this because any one verse could raise 50 questions. And so we want to address this. So by way of introduction, let me just give you a, a, a big picture here just for a moment. There are three questions that Paul will address and uh, raise and answer. And these serve as the markers through the chapters, through this chapter. The first uh, deals with verse 6, um, which is, I just raised, has the word of God failed? That's in verse 6. And so from 6 to 13, he will answer this question, has the word of God failed? Has the promise of God failed? Second question is in verse 14. What shall we say then? Question mark. There is no injustice with God, comma, is there? Question mark. The second question is, is God unjust? Because when you look at the doctrine of election, when you initially look at it, you might come to the conclusion that's not fair for God to choose some and to pass over others. So Paul knows that that's on the forefront of the reader's minds and on your mind and my mind. So in verses 14 through 18, he will address that question, is God unfair? Is God unjust to choose some but not others? Then in verse 19 is the third question. And in verse 19, we read, You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? Question mark. For who resists his will? Question mark. And that question is, How can God still hold us responsible? If God chooses, how does he still hold me responsible? Or to put it another way, why does God still blame us? So, with each of these questions, these are questions that Paul anticipates um, is raised in the mind of the reader and in the mind of anyone who's confronted with these truths. And these are questions that I have raised. Uh, it's not unspiritual to raise, necessarily raise these questions. Though we will see with the third question, Paul will slam the door shut and he will say, you have gone way too far with God. Uh, it's none of your business to cross-examine God. Keep those questions to yourself. God is God, you're not. So with that last question, uh, it, it'll be very direct. You'll want to be here for that, for that study. <laughs> So, we're, we're, we're working away. This is like climbing a mountain. This, this is like climbing Mount Everest, all right? And it's just going to go higher and higher and higher. So, here we begin the ascent up. And I've got three headings to give you now as we look at verses 6 through 13. And I'm not certain we're going to get through all this, all right? So, the first heading is the affirmation of Scripture. The affirmation of of Scripture, and that is in 6a. So, Paul begins 
But it is not as though the Word of God has failed. Though he doesn't state it in a question, in his mind he knows people are asking this question. Has the Word of God failed? You promised you were going to bless Israel. And Israel is hardened in unbelief. And the church is now becoming a Gentile church. So this is what Paul will address. It is not as though the Word of God, and when he says the Word of God, he's referring to the promises that God gave to Israel. The word failed. It's not as though the Word of God has failed. literally means to fall, like to fall over, uh, to, 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 to fall and no longer stand. So it's not as though the Word of God is no longer standing, is it? And so Paul, as we go through this chapter, I, I just want you to see this. He, he is so brilliant the way he addresses this. He will use the Old Testament in the rest of this chapter to show, no, the Word of God has not failed. And he won't just say it, he'll show it. And so I, what I want you to see, uh, I just, on my little piece of paper here, I just went through all the verses and I'm gonna, I'll just say this rather quickly, but you can jot down some of these if you care. There are 15 Old Testament citations that, beginning in verse 7, going to verse 33, and Paul will use the Old Testament Scripture to show that the Old Testament Scripture has not failed. So do you understand his, uh, his pedagogy, the way he's teaching this? So, let me, let me just show you this, and you can just let your eye go down the page. In verse 7, he quotes Genesis 21, verse 12. In verse 9, he quotes Genesis 18, 10, and then it echoes in verse 14. So maybe it's 16 citations. In verse 12, it's Genesis 25, 23. In verse 13, it's Malachi 1, 2, and 3. And if you use the New American Standard like, like I do, these are in all capital letters. So you know it's an Old Testament quotation with the New American Standard because they're put in all capital letters to help the reader understand what's going on. Um, in verse 15, he quotes Exodus 33, verse 19. In verse 17, it's Exodus 9, verse 16. In verse 25, it's Hosea 2, verse 23. In verse 26, it's Hosea 1, verse 10. In verse 27, and I'm reading all this just so you'll even feel the, the, the impact of what Paul's doing. In verse 27, it's Isaiah 10, 22, and it's also Genesis 22, 17, and it's Hosea 1, verse 10. In verse 28, it's Isaiah 10, verse 23, and in verse 29, it's Isaiah 1, verse 9. And in verse 33, it's Isaiah 28, verse 16. And Isaiah 8, verse 14. Now, that was a mouthful to go through all that. And I hope I didn't lose you. It sounds almost like I'm reading a phone book, you know, <laughs> going through all this. But there's a point to be made. That the Old Testament Scripture has not failed. And as Paul will make his argument, he will actually use the Old Testament Scripture to show that the Old Testament Scripture has not failed. That it was this way all along. So he affirms 
the Old Testament Scripture. That's, that's number one. And we all know that. It's impossible for God to lie. Uh, the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Um, heaven and earth will pass away before the Word of God will pass away. Isaiah 40, verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades away. But the Word of our God abides forever, etc., etc., etc. All of God's promises are yea and amen, 2 Corinthians 1. So, Paul begins by affirming that everything that was said in the Old Testament, even specifically about the future salvation of Israel, everything is going according to God's eternal purpose and plan. There has been no deviation from the Word of God. The Word of God has not fallen over and collapsed. It's standing stronger than it's ever stood before. So that's the first thing to see. Now, the second half of verse 6 is the second heading. And it's the clarification of Scripture. Because Paul now will clarify what he just stated at the beginning of verse 6. Now, this clarification is a very important clarification because it's the key that will unlock the door that will let us into the following verses. It's the key that will unlock the door. So, he says in the second half of verse 6, for they, who's the they? The they is ethnic Israel. The they is physical Israel. The they is someone who is born a Jew, um, a child of Abraham, okay? For they, yeah, Dan, that would be you, all right? <laughs> there you are, right there. <laughs> For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Now, what does that mean? Because it almost sounds like kind of double talk, or what, what does that mean? What this means is the first mention of Israel is spiritual Israel. Uh, it is believing Israel. The second mention of Israel is the same as the they. It's physical Israel. So here's the principle, here's the point, that within the larger circumference of ethnic Israel, there is a smaller concentric circle that is the, the remnant, the believing remnant. And while God has chosen the entire nation to be His instrument, within physical Israel, there is a smaller Israel that is the true Israel, that is the spiritual Israel. Let me put it another way. The larger circle are those who are born a Jew. The smaller inside circle are those who are born and born again a Jew. So that's the point that Paul is making for clarification. And the promises in the Old Testament Scripture were not made to the physical Israel as it relates to salvation. God never promised to save every Jew. The promise was for the remnant. And it was the remnant that He chose for salvation. 
It, that's who He chose to be. Who, those are the ones whom He will call out of the nation into a saving relationship with Himself. Now, this is an important principle for us to understand because it's easily applied to today. Uh, well, first of all, not every Jew is a believing Jew. Uh, Dan here is a believing Jew. But the nation Israel is apostate right now. There are a relative handful. So it's grace upon grace, Dan. But the principle also applies to the church in this sense. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not a replacement theology guy. The, the church has not replaced Israel. Israel is still Israel. However, everybody who goes to church isn't a believer. There, there are a lot of people who have a name on a church roll, but their name's not on the Lamb's Book of Life or in the Lamb's Book of Life. Uh, the, the church, not all the church is the church. Just like not all Israel is Israel. And it's possible to be in a church building but not be in a believe, but, and not be a believer. Just like it's possible to go into McDonald's and you're not a hamburger, okay? <laughs> it's possible to sit in a garage and that doesn't make you a car. And you can just come to this Bible study and that doesn't mean that you're a Christian or a believer. Now, we're thrilled you're here, but what this means is every one of us must be absolutely certain that we are born again, that we have a personal saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. So that's the clarification that Paul is making. You won't think that the promises of God have failed if you only understand that not all Israel is Israel. And God said it was that way from the very beginning. So in essence, Paul is saying, you need to go back and reread your Old Testament. Because even in the Old Testament, God said there would be a saving remnant within the nation. So that leads us now to the third heading, which is the illustrations from Scripture. And that is in verses 7 through 13. Paul, the master teacher that he is, the clarification wasn't necessarily enough, he now wants to set before us two examples so that I can show you what I'm, what I'm saying. And the two examples, he will set forth Abraham and his sons, that's in verses 6 through 8, and then he will set forth Isaac and his sons, that's verses 9 through 13. So, uh, these are premier examples. These are not obscure examples that we don't even know who this is. He begins with the father of the entire nation of Israel, Abraham. And then he goes to the, uh, one of the sons of Abraham, Isaac. And, and by doing this, Paul is showing it was this way from the very beginning. Not all of Abraham's sons believed. And not all of Isaac's sons believed. So when this stream first began to flow, there was a separation in the stream. Even as it began to flow, there, there, there began to be two tribu tributaries uh, flowing from the fountain. 
So let's begin with the first, and it's Abraham and his son, starting in verse 7. Nor are they all children. Who are the they? The they is the same as the they in verse 6. The they refer to sons of Abraham. And when we say sons of Abraham, we mean physical sons of Abraham. That doesn't necessarily mean spiritual sons, just physical sons of, of, of Abraham. So he says, they, nor are they all children. When he says children, and you've got to keep your eye on the bouncing ball here. Children here refers to sons of God, spiritual sons of God. So he's making this, uh, reinforcing the clarification that he just made at the end of verse 6, nor are they all children. All the children are not children. There are physical children, and within physical children, there are spiritual children. So he's reaffirming that, and now he will, as we'll go in verse 7, you'll see where he's headed with this, because, and when he says because, let me put it in the vernacular, we would say, just simply because. They're not all children, just simply because they are Abraham's descendants. In other words, no one is born a believer. You have to be born again to be a believer. Uh, back when I pastored, we used to have people write their testimony when they wanted to come join the church. And every once in a while, I would get one of those testimonies where someone would say, oh, I've always been a believer. <laughs> I've always been a Christian. And we just like flashing red lights. <laughs> Time out. You know, come to the side lovingly, graciously, pastorally, but evangelistically. Explain to them, no one's always been a believer. No one was born into this world a believer. You have to be born again after you've been born in order to be a believer. So, the point, that's the point Paul is making in verse 7. Nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. So this is like John 1 verse 13, uh, who were born not of flesh, uh, nor of the will of man, nor of, and there's another nor I'm going blank, but of God. Uh, no one, just because your father is a believer doesn't mean you're a believer. That's the point. God has many children, but he has no grandchildren, okay? Everyone has to be personally born again. So, let's continue the verse now. Nor are they all children because they are descendants, because they are Abraham's descendants, but... And the but indicates rather through Isaac your descendants will be named. Now we go, now wait a minute. Abraham had two sons. There was Ishmael through Hagar, and there was Isaac through Sarah. But what Paul is clarifying here is that it was Isaac, that son, is who God chose to save, not Ishmael. God passed over Ishmael, and God chose to save Isaac. That's, that's abundantly clear. God was good to Ishmael. God gave him temporal blessings. He just did not choose him for eternal blessings. 
And so it was through Isaac. And he's quoting now Genesis 21, verse 12. So even within Abraham's sons, don't miss this point, even within Abraham's sons, Abraham being the father of the nation, not all of his physical descendants were believers, even with Abraham. Now, continue to follow this. Through Abraham, your descendants, um, and if you have the ESV, I think it says seed. It's a Greek word, sperma, which comes into the English language as, as, as sperm. The idea is procreation. Through Isaac, your descendants, your offspring, I guess maybe that's what the ESV has, offspring, um, He's talking about spiritual offspring. Will be named. Now, I was digging around last night on this word named, and I thought, so what does that mean? Your translation may say appointed. So I I looked it up, and literally it is the word called, like the effectual call of God. Uh, and just like we saw in Romans 8, 28 and 29, let me just remind you that, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. And then in verse, um, that was verse 28, and then verse, uh, verse uh, 30, and these whom He predestined, He also called, and these whom He called, very same Greek word. And just so you'll note this, at the end of verse 11, it says, so that God's purpose according to His choice would stand, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. There it is again. Then in verse 24, even us whom He also called, verse 25, I will call those who are not my people, my people. And in verse 26, there shall be... Uh, there they shall be called sons of the living God. So there is this sovereign, effectual, irresistible call of God that goes to those whom God has chosen. And in this case, it was not Ishmael, but it was Isaac. And then within, and we'll see in a minute, within Isaac's family. It wasn't Esau, it was Jacob. So, not all Israel is Israel, is the point. So, in verse 8, Paul being the good teacher that he is, he, in essence, says, let me explain myself more carefully. So, verse 8 begins, that is, and good teachers are always using that phrase, that is. In other words, this is to say, let me restate that. Simply put, so that's what Paul's doing here. He's just uh, using repetition yet with different words. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God. So it's not those who are born physically a Jew who inherit salvation. I mean, you can be a Jew and go straight to hell. 
Just like you can be a Gentile and go straight to hell. It's those who are the children of God. So please make a stark contrast in verse 8 between the children of the flesh and the children of God. The children of God are those who are born again. The children of God are those who have been sovereignly elected and effectually called by God. And that, again, is the remnant, the smaller concentric circle within the larger nation among Israel. So, just remember, what Paul is addressing is, hey, the Word of God has not failed. God said in His Word from the very beginning, even with Abraham's family, they're not all going to be children of God. And we'll see in a moment, even within Isaac's family, they're not all going to be children of God. So, in the middle of verse 8, we get to the but. And so he goes, but the children of the promise, children of the promise is the same as children of God. Because God promised to save them. The children of the promise are regarded as descendants. And uh, your translation may say are counted as offspring. Uh, Regarded, for those of you who work in the financial world, this regarded is an accounting term. Logizomai. You can hear logarithms and logic in that. And it's a very definite counting and calculating. Uh, The children of the promise, they are the ones who are counted by God as descendants, meaning spiritual descendants. So, the point is very clear. The Word of God has not failed. God never purposed to save the entire nation of Israel. God only purposed to save a remnant within Israel, Uh, just like it is in the church, just like it is in America. People say, well, we we once were a Christian nation. We were never all saved. I mean, there were a bunch of people that were saved, Whitfield and Edwards and the Great Awakening, but there were scores of unconverted people, Not, not all people in a, even in a so-called Christian nation are born again. So, that's the point that Paul is, is making here. Now, verse 9 will explain the content of the promise and why this promise is invincible and cannot fail. Because the promise of God is executed by His... Sovereign call. So, let's look at verse 9. For this is the word of promise. And the word was actually spoken by God to Sarah and to Abraham. For this is the word of promise. And the promise deals with the promise to save. uh, The promise to make this one an object of God's grace. So, he now quotes Genesis 18, verse 10. And Paul is a real expositor. I mean, he's just spitting out verses right and left. He's pulling the whole Bible together to make this point. He's using Scripture to teach Scripture. He's using Scripture to interpret Scripture. He's using Scripture to illustrate Scripture. This is tremendous. So, 
he quotes the verse, At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. Now, this son refers not to Ishmael, it refers to Isaac. And the speaker of this is God. And it goes back to Genesis 18, and it's what we call a theophany, could be a Christophany, which means an appearance of God or an appearance of Christ before He entered this world. I mean, Jesus came to this world in the form of the angel of the Lord before His virgin birth. There were some isolated, periodic times when Christ, the second person of the Godhead, appeared. And this is one of those in Genesis 18. There were three angels that appeared. Two were created angelic beings. One was the angel, capital A, of the Lord. And the word angel just means messenger. So Christ appeared as the angel of the Lord. The one sent with the message of the Father. So don't misunderstand. I'm not saying Jesus is an angel like some Mormon teaching. Uh, no, he is simply referenced as the messenger of the Lord with God's message. And this is God's message. I will come, and the idea there is God will come and divinely intervene in the life of Sarah, who is so old, she has passed the age of being able to conceive and bear a son. I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And that shall is a, a shall of divine certainty. It is a shall of divine invincibility that God will cause it to happen. And it will be a miraculous conception. And it will be a miraculous son. And in some ways it's a foreshadowing by type of the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, that He too would be born of, of a miraculous birth. And in some way, by type, it is a foreshadowing of your new birth, that that was a miraculous birth, that it would have been impossible for you to have been born again, except God came and intervened in your spiritually dead heart. Just like Sarah's womb was physically dead, God caused it to live and for there to be life in that womb. And so that, that's the point that, that Paul is making as he quotes Genesis 18, that those whom God has chosen to save, God can make it happen. God will sovereignly, powerfully, supernaturally come and intervene in that life. And just like Isaac was supernaturally, physically born, God can also cause the one chosen to be spiritually born. That's the point that God is making. So, um, let's look now at verse 10. We go now to Isaac's sons. The point has been made that not all Israel is Israel Isaac had one son that was chosen to be saved, another son that was not chosen to be saved. Now, I guess I need to make this application. Even within families today that go to church, 
not everyone is necessarily saved. And you can have the same physical father and you be saved, but one of your siblings is not saved. That's the way it was with Abraham. And for those of you who are fathers, if one of your sons is not a believer, it doesn't necessarily mean you've done a horrible job being a father. Because even with Abraham, one believed, the other did not believe. There are the eternal purposes of God that will be worked out according to God's own purpose. Now, someone may say, and, and it's usually wives and mothers, wow, then I don't want to have any more children because I, I don't know that they'll be chosen. You're not wiser than God. You're not more loving than God. God will do exactly what's right with each of your children. You just witness to them, love them, bring the gospel to them, take them to church, bring them to where the gospel is, pray for their salvation, but you just have to leave the results to God. Mom, you can't save your children. Dad, you can't save your children. Only God can save your children. You do your part, but at the end of the day, God must do His part. So this leads us now to verse 10. And I'd love to just look at verses 10 through 12, and we'll pick up verse 13 next Thursday if we can do it that way. So he, he, he keeps the, the logic going, and he comes to the second illustration now in verse 10. Excuse me, earlier I said it was verses 6 through 9. Yeah, okay, it was 6 through 9. I may have said Isaac sons was 9 through 13. I meant 10 through 13. You may need to correct that. So, now we're in verse 10. And not only this, that's a way of saying, we would put it this way if I, if I was just verbally speaking. Well, let me give you another example. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also. So we were just talking about Sarah, Abraham's wife. Now let's talk about Rebekah, who is Isaac's wife. When she had conceived twins. Now, I can understand this. I have a wife who conceived twins. Uh, and those twins are Jacob and Esau. By one man, our father Isaac. So, we, we understand the concept here. Verse 11. For though the twins were not yet born. So, it's prenatal. But, I mean, it's... In reality, it's before the foundation of the world. For though the twins were not yet born, and had not done anything good or bad. So, what he's about to say, it will have nothing to do whether Isaac or whether Jacob or Esau do this or don't do that. Uh, it has nothing to do with them. So that God's purpose. Now, you remember God's purpose. That was in Romans 8, 28. He says, we know God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. That's talking about God's eternal purpose. This is talking about God's eternal decree. It's talking about God's sovereign will from all eternity past. It's talking about plan A, and there is no plan B. That's what God's purpose is according to his choice. His choice here is referring to sovereign election, unconditional election. 
the Ephesians 1, verse 4. Those whom God the Father chose by Himself and for Himself to be in, to be the chosen bride for His Son. God's purpose, according to His choice, would stand. And I think there's an intentional contrast between verse 6, where He says, it's not as though the Word of God has failed, and the word failed means to fall. He now contrasts with, no, God's choice stands. God's choice and God's purpose can never fall over. Not because of works. So it's not on the basis of anything that God supposedly would have foreseen in Jacob or Esau, but, so in other words, here's the way it actually is. But because of Him, God the Father, who calls, and the call uh, brings into effect the result of His choice and purpose. So God makes His his choice based upon His purpose, and the call brings it into reality within time. The purpose and the choice is in eternity past. The call is within time. And the call is so powerful that when God calls that one whom He has chosen, they will respond because the Spirit of God will draw them and convict them and give them repentance and faith and then regenerate them, they will then in turn call upon the name of the Lord because they have first been called. Now, look at verse 12. It was said to her, and... Paul now quotes Genesis 25, 23. The older will serve the younger. Time out. God just reversed everything. Because it's the younger who serves the older. And what God is establishing here, a principle, is that God most often chooses the most unlikely ones to be His. God delights to reverse the way you think it would be. And so often God chooses the one that appears to be the furthest away from Him and passes over the one that we would have said, oh, that's the next one to be saved, I'm sure of that. God delights in doing the unexpected. God delights in passing over the one we think would be the first round lottery pick and reaching the one that for us would be the one that was never drafted, the most unlikely one. And that's what happens here in in verse 12. God completely reverses the order. Now, I'm going to just touch on verse 13, and I I need more time for next week to to unpack verse 13, but let me just kind of wade out and then we'll have discussion among ourselves and then anyone who wants to uh, email us. Verse 13, just as it is written, and so Paul just keeps quoting Scripture, and so there's a double authority as Paul quotes Scripture. It would have been enough for Paul as an apostle to say it is this way, but for, for Paul as an apostle to now quote Scripture... This is, a, 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 this is like two nails into the board. 
to fasten it. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And so even within Isaac's household, within the nation of Israel at that point, and at this point, I mean, the nation Israel is just Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and, you know, um, Rebekah is now kind of grafted in. And now these two twins, it's a pretty small circle of a nation at this point. God chooses to love Jacob. And when he says, Jacob, I loved, that means, Jacob, I have chosen to love and to save. And we know that from Romans eight twenty nine when he says, those whom he foreknew, which means those whom he previously loved, or those whom he previously chose to love. Now, but Esau I hated. And what that means is, not that he loved Esau less, but that he actually rejected, and because of his holiness, and because of Esau's unholiness, he actually had animosity. For Esau, and rightly so, because Esau, left in his sin, was a flagrant violation of the holiness of God. Now, next week, I, w- I want to develop this, and there are other um, positions on this, and I, w- I want to acknowledge those and, and talk this out with you. But at this point, what you simply need to see is that God chose Jacob, and he did not choose Esau. That, we can at least agree on that. And that even at the very beginning, when there's only a handful within the nation, they weren't all children of God. Esau was never a child of God, though he was a child of Abraham and a child of Isaac. So, the Word of God has not failed. Even in Paul's day in the first century when Israel rose up and crucified the Lord Jesus Christ and rejected Him and refused their Messiah. And the Gospel then went to the Gentiles and Gentiles began to flood into the church. It wasn't as if everything God said in the Old Testament had been invalidated. No, God is a promise keeper. God kept His Word because God never promised to save all Israel to begin with. It didn't happen in Abraham's family. It didn't happen in Isaac's family. Now, just a couple points of application, then we'll open it up, and Ken, if you've got any... Uh, anybody coming in or texting us, emailing us. If you're in a family where all your children are believers, you, you are blessed beyond blessed, beyond blessed, beyond blessed, beyond blessed. Because it's not an automatic thing. 
God has opened the windows of heaven and poured out his mercy and his grace upon your household. You should be so stunned at the goodness and mercy of God. That's number one. Number two, this should not prevent you from having children. You should have children. And you should bring the gospel to them. But it's the same for your children just like it is for the people who live across the street. You can't guarantee anyone's salvation. You're going to have to leave the matter with God who does what's right. And in these next questions that we will, Paul will raise, we will see God is not unjust. And God is not unfair. Because fair would be God would choose no one. And God would leave everyone in their sin. It's mercy that God even chose and loved Jacob. It's mercy that God even saved Isaac. It's mercy that God even saved you. But it is not unjust for God not to save everyone. So we need to understand we don't want fair. We want mercy. We don't want justice. We want mercy. You don't want what you deserve. Let me put it that way. You want what you do not deserve because of the Lord Jesus Christ. So those are the two primary points of application that I want to make here. And just to reinforce the main one at the end, God's Word will never fail. And if there seems to be a contradiction, it's not in the Bible. It's in our understanding. The limitation is with you and me. It's not with God, I promise you. And it's not in the Word of God. It's just that we need more clarification. We need better understanding. But the Scripture never contradicts itself, and the Scripture never fails. And there may be a few knots tied a few places in the Bible that you can't quite sort out. You may just have to live with it. But be, be assured, there's no problem in the book. Uh, the problem is with our understanding. And it may take another world before we actually have a few of those knots untied. So, having said that, let, let, let me stop. And Kent, you've got the microphone there. And so what questions does this raise? Or what do you got there? We have a lot of questions. Oh, we have a lot of questions. A lot. So uh, I don't think we have time. What time do you have to leave? I want to start on some. Yeah, well, let's just start. All right, so let me, ask, let me just ask a question. So we understand from God's point of view um, the order of salvation and how he works. From our point of view, we have children. We don't know if they're saved. We obviously know God uh, ordains that when and if. How do we practically live our lives and teach and evangelize then? I mean, what... Because there's all there's, there's it's so easy to say. Well, if God has already ordained it, then there's really no reason for me to do anything. 
Well, here's the deal. Even if your children have not yet come to faith in Christ, you don't know but that they actually are chosen. It just may be an adult conversion rather than a child conversion. And so, actually, that should give great hope to every parent that God can override a child's resistance. God can override a child being uh, a prodigal child. God can, God can, can overcome um, rebellion by a child. You want God to be sovereign. You want God to be greater than the child's will. You want God to have the final word and the final say. And so, Ken, it should be great hope. You asked, how do we live? We just live our Christian life like God has called us to live our Christian life. Uh, for there to be a genuineness and authenticity in the home, that you're not one person uh, at church and then somebody else at home, that there is a consistency about your Christian life and Christian walk. And let me also say, there are no perfect parents. And so we can't put ourselves on some big guilt trip. Um, we just, by the grace of God, walk humbly before our children, and we love them, we discipline them. I, I, I came to Christ as a result of my father's discipline. I, I understood there were consequences to wrong decisions, I, 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 painful consequences to wrong decisions. And that, the gospel made a whole lot of sense to me uh, because I wasn't allowed just to go my own way and do my own thing. So we love our children, we discipline our children, we teach them the Word of God, we take them where the Word of God is preached, um, and we pray for our children. Um, but beyond that, only God can take it from the ear to the heart. It, it's, it's not a different category with our children. It's the same with our children, just like it is with anybody else that we witness to. I can bring it to the ear, I can't go any further. God has to bring it from the ear to the heart. The other thing I would say is child evangelism is a very tricky deal because, um, you know, it's hard to know. Time will, ha time will have to tell the validity of a, a, a prayer, whether, w was that real or was that not real? I would encourage it, I would rejoice in it, but I would also have to hold that with an open hand, that time will tell. Um, the proof is always with perseverance the long haul, uh, whether it's real or not. Okay, why, why is this truth so hard for us? Why do we resist this? What, what, what's, how, how did this impact you? It, because it's all, it's all about control. We want, to, we want to be in control. And when we hear that we're not in control, that, that just flips us out. And especially in America, where we love being in control of everything, and where there's democracy, and we can vote people in, we can vote people out, and my vote matters. And to read this, and to read that heaven's not being run by a democracy, uh, the universe is not being run by a democracy, it's being run by a theocracy. Well, praise God for that. I mean, just look around at the world around you. If everybody gets one vote, I don't want democracy. There are few on the narrow path. The many are on the broad path. Praise God, there's no democracy uh, in the kingdom of God. That it's run by theocracy, by an all-wise benevolent king. But for us, it, it's just, we took the steering wheel out of our hands when we read this. And it forces us to trust God with the results. But it's just to find out that we're, 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 we're not large and in charge. That, that we're small and God is big. And so that's just very humbling. 
So before we go, here you go. There might be some questions. Yeah. I wanted to be fair to the guys here. Yeah, sure. Yeah, Chip. This has to be an easy question, Chip. <laughs> it's an easy one. I, I just wondered how you uh, would deal with the word, uh, word maseo in that, uh, in that context, love less rather than um, hate. It seems like you're headed somewhere else. I'm just curious because yeah, it may have, have some pertinence to what he said. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Chip, you'll just have to come back next week. Uh, no, that's why I, I've, I've got more pages and notes here, and I want to just have time for discussion, and I, I want to be able to trace this out. So thank you for that. It's a teaser. It's a teaser, okay? This is like a Trump press conference, okay? So, <laughs> yeah. Is there a point where you stop sharing the gospel with people that rejects and rejects and rejects? Well, yes and no. Um, no, in the sense that th there are deathbed conversions. My father-in-law was converted just, you know, a day and a half before he died. Um, and my wife stayed after him all but it literally crawled into his hospital bed and, and, and witnessed to him. And, and her brother did the very same thing with him. One would pray and the other would witness in that hospital room. Then they would flip-flop. The other would pray, the other would witness. So I, I think we, we, we chase people down to the gates of hell. And like Spurgeon said, if they're going to go to hell, let them go to hell with our arms around their ankles and holding on to their coattails. Do not go to hell. So that's the way we need to be. Now, Jesus did say, do not cast your pearls before swine. And so there, I think there does come a point if someone is spitting on the gospel, cursing, blaspheming the name of God, there does come a point you leave a fool to his own ways. But big picture, by and large, I, I haven't met that person yet, personally. Um, you, you, you stay after them with tenacity in prayer and um, in witnessing. And our great hope is the doctrine of election, that they would yet be one of those we would discover that are chosen by God. What else you got, Ken? Uh, we got about 15 coming in here. But here, here's one interesting question. Uh, you mentioned, he says, that a child couldn't be a believer at birth. According to that view viewpoint, how would you explain the leaping of John the Baptist in the womb when the mother of the Savior entered? His excitement at the coming Savior shows his regenerated heart. The psalm that says, Behold, in sin my mother conceived me, is talking about the original guilt of Adam. Yeah, okay. Yeah, no, I'm very familiar with that hyper-reform position. Um, first of all, to establish sound doctrine, you never go first to a narrative. Uh, if you did that, then you would be a foot-washing church. Uh, you would also cast lots for your next elders and deacons. Um, there are many wacky things that you would come up with. What you want for a proper interpretation is for something to be taught by Christ, for it to be practiced in the book of Acts, and for it to be explained in the epistles. When all three of those line up, you never take one verse and read the entire rest of the Bible through one verse. You do the very opposite. You take the entire rest of the Bible and read it into one verse. 
Otherwise, it would be like taking a, a, a broken piece of green glass, holding it to your eye, and going, the whole world is green. No, the whole world is not green. You just took one little piece and stuck it in front of your eye, and that was the paradigm through which you saw everything. That's what that question is doing. And I, and, and I understand. That was R.C. Sproul's position. So I mean, there, there are some people that are not necessarily wacky that, that hold to that position. It is a hyper reform position that I utterly reject because I'm not going to take one verse and read that into the whole rest of the Bible. So um, how to explain that? I'm not entirely certain. Um, I'll, I'll need to go back and, and reinvestigate. I just know this. The tail is not wagging the dog. No one is regenerated in their mother's womb. Okay, you mentioned today Christ appeared in the Old Testament before he, he was a virgin born. Yeah. Can you give other examples of his appearing in the Old Testament? Yeah, uh, through the book of Genesis, and I, I don't have the Bible in front of me where I had, excuse me? Yeah, come into Abraham and with Lot, and uh, there are multiple ones of those. I would also say when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in the fiery furnace, and there's a fourth one, like unto the Son of Man. Um, I, I think that's a pre-incarnate Christ. Um, so I, I would have to have, you know, just a little bit of time to gather together um, all of my... Oh, also Joshua 5, verse 13. Um, as as uh, Joshua is preparing to lead the people of God um, across Jordan and into the Promised Land, and it says that uh, the captain of the Lord of hosts appeared to Joshua, that's the pre-incarnate Christ. I understand that may sound like an odd statement to make. I, I understand that, but some things in theology may sound odd. Okay. Do you want, uh, we have more questions. What's your timing? Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm okay. Give me, give me one more. All right. Are the promises to the remnant of Israel and the promises to the true church who are born again today the same? If not, how are they different, and how is the remnant different than the true church? Okay, they're, they're the same in this sense. There's only one gospel. There's only one way of salvation. There's only one kingdom of God. Uh, there are only one people of God. So it's same in that sense. We have been grafted into what God is doing with the promises um, to Israel. So I, I'm not a hyper-dispensationalist where there are different rooms in heaven and different, you know, Jews are over here and Gentiles over there and it's two different ways of salvation and there was one way for God to save the Jew, a different way God, you know, I'm, I'm not into that. that. That is, in fact, I think that's heretical. There's only one way of salvation, one promises of God, and we've been grafted into that. So why don't we close? Yeah. And I'm sure there may be people that have questions after. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll close. And if you want to stay, please stay. And if you need to run, I understand that as, as, as well. Just be sure to buy coffee as you, as you leave. Please. So, One in each hand. Yeah, because... <laughs> <laughs> Father, thank you for what you have recorded in your word. Continue to open our eyes. Continue to give us insight. Uh, illumine our understanding, enlighten us, Father. And we ask that uh, not only would we understand, but that we would live the reality of what we, of what we have seen. 
And Lord, we, we, we do pray for our children. And we pray that you would save them, even those who, who are adults. And here in, in this room, we have many men who are of an age that their children have left home. And for those who have not yet come to faith in Christ, who are going their own way, Lord, hear this prayer. And we ask that you would yet bring them into the fold. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for joining me for the Bible study. If this was helpful for your Christian walk, please leave us a review wherever you listen to this show. And if you want to connect on social media, I can be found at Dr. Stephen J. Lawson or at One Passion Ministries. Thank you for listening, and I hope you will join me again next week.